Howdy folks, thanks for tuning in to the Cimarron Ranch Homestead Podcast. In this segment, we're going to be talking about uh, how to find homestead land for your homesteading dreams. In the last segment, we spoke more of ways to find land. In other words, different venues you can go to and get land that's virtually mortgage-free or even free and outright. In this segment, we're going to speak more about what happens once you find your land or once you've found the area you think you want to be in, what to look for, and what questions to ask. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you why I've chosen these first for our first podcast. It's because this is probably the most important question you can ask yourself, because the location of your land and the quality of land is probably the most important thing as well for the start of your homestead dreams. If you get off on the wrong foot, there's a good chance you're going to regret it down the road. Uh, it'll be kind of like riding backwards in the saddle. It's going to be a little bit more difficult than it should be. And let's face it, homesteading is not the easiest thing in the world. And we want to make things as easy as we can before we jump into it. And that's why I've chosen ways to buy homestead land and how to buy homestead land as the first two podcasts besides our introduction. I'd like to jump into the first one. We'll be talking about how much land to buy, the quality of the land, access to the land, and things like water and well depths as our first questions to ask when you approach your potential piece of property. My first question will be, the first one I just spoke of, will be um, how much land do you really need? It depends on what you want to do. Uh, For example, you might just want to have uh, have enough income through a farmer's market and have a garden and maybe sell some eggs and this will be enough for you uh, and supplement that with a job in town. And that's fine. Therefore, you don't need a lot of land to do that. You just basically need quality over quantity. If you're going to do uh, something other than that, say, for example, you're going to range cattle or sheep or goats, you're probably going to need a little bit more land or more better quality land uh, if you have, say, just a few acres. So the first thing I do when I evaluate a piece of land is I evaluate myself first. I evaluate what do I want to use with this land. That'll dictate what I'm going to approach. My last homestead, I had about 80 acres with, um, it was off grid and there was tons of free range and the soil was, wasn't too good. I decided I was going to raise sheep. And we had a small band of sheep, and it worked out fairly well based on the soil that we had. I could have put in vegetables, but the pH level of the soil wasn't vegetable ready. And for me to increase the quality of the soil would have been more of a hardship than I would have liked to undertake. So I decided to go with a band of sheep, and we did that for a while, and it worked out pretty well. And I liked it so much that I wanted to continue doing it on our second homestead, which is what we're doing right now. We're not raising sheep, but I've gone onto the piece of property and I've looked at it. I realized that uh, it'd be more beneficial for what we were doing earlier since now I have the experience to do it. Might as well do something along those lines, a larger type of livestock like cattle, sheep, or goats. Now, the first thing I do is... Once I realize what I want to do with it, and in this instance, livestock, I'm going to start looking at first what's 
already growing on there. Is it beneficial to a livestock that I want to grow? And if it is, what is the potential stocking rate for that piece of property? In some sections of the country, stocking rates are pretty low. By stocking rate, I mean how many head of cattle can that piece of property sustain? This varies with the fact that uh, some years are wetter than others, thereby you have a little bit more uh, forage ability, and also varies with how much supplemental forage you want to give them like hay. So I look at the the stocking rate, and in our section, our our section of country, area of country, it's pretty low. If you're in some areas, you might only get uh, one head of cattle per 100 acres. So you're going to need a lot of land if this is how you, how you, how it goes. I know a lot of the rangeland managers uh, in the area, and the average stocking rate is three to four head per section for, say, state or BLM land that's being grazed. And this depends greatly by state. So if you have, say, three to four head that they're recommending, and they're really conservative because it's a lot easier to undergraze a piece of property than to rectify an overgrazed piece of property. So they're very conservative. And in private ownership, uh, I'm talking about uh, public land, but in private ownership, you could probably double or triple these numbers because you're going to be more in tune to what the cattle are doing to the landscape. So say you even doubled or tripled this, this would still bring us down to anywhere between maybe one or two head, three head per 100 acres, depending on beef prices or how much effort you want to put into it. This might not be viable for the average homesteader. Whereas, say for example, you're in a place east of the Mississippi or greener parts of the northwest, your stocking rate might be one head of cattle per three acres, and it might be viable. And you might be able to put more head of cattle on a 30-acre plot than you can in 300 acres here. So it's, it's something to look into. Of course, if you're going to do smaller livestock, like chickens, rabbits, ducks, things of that nature, you don't need a lot of land. Uh, and the quality doesn't have to be that good either. Because, say, for example, chickens, of course, they do better on better quality land, but they'll scratch a lot of, uh, a lot of their forage on poor quality land as well. Uh, so, but you definitely don't need as much land than you would, say, some of the bigger uh, livestock. And this is something to look forward to because if you're going to do that, then why waste the money on a large plot of land? A lot of smaller plots of land are also found closer to town. So you might be able to buy a piece of property, smaller piece of property closer to town, for some cases even less than larger plots that are more remote. I guess the bottom line is to figure out what do I want to do when I homestead to make uh, income. And this all goes into what size property you want. That ties into our second thing to look at, and that's the quality of the land. Now, for most vegetables, you're going to need a pH level anywhere between 5.5 to 7, 6 to 7 pH, uh, depending on what vegetable you're trying to grow and where you're located. 
My first thing is I look to see what's on going on there already. Then you can go out to, say, a hardware store and get a soil sample kit. And they're pretty inexpensive. They're maybe about seven, eight bucks. Uh, this is the winter of 2017. So you can get some of these inexpensive soil sample kits and check various spots on your property. My homestead right now has various kinds of soil on there. Uh, some of it's very rocky and you can't grow anything on there. And that's where I put my house. Uh, the better stuff that I have, the better soil, is down in the lower parts of my property where it's a lot richer soil and the pH is a lot better. And that's where I'm going to put the uh, livestock and uh, grow vegetables. So I use the worst part of the property for my my homestead and the best part of the property for the actual uh, vegetables and for the livestock. Take several soil samples from different parts of the property and then you can barrel into the area that's probably the best part for you. If you're doing this, you want to make sure that even if the soil isn't of good quality, that it's not too much trouble to rectify it. Will it be a big pain in the butt to bring lime into your property to rectify the pH level? In my case, I don't want to haul lime two hours from nearest paved road just to get to my property to change the pH content because it's going to take multiple trips. So in my case, that's where livestock comes in. Bad soil is kind of like being a quadriplegic goalkeeper during the World Cup. You're going to be fighting an uphill battle, and it's not going to be a lot of fun. Also, the quality of the land is not solely dictated by the soil that you have on there. It's also certain things like where it's facing. For example, is it facing south, or is it possible to put a homestead on there that faces south? Do you have enough wood on the property? Are there enough trees where you don't have to go out and buy wood for heating if that's something you need to do? So woodlot is a value, and that increases the quality of the land as well. Quality of land is also dictated by wells and well depth or by the fact that uh, you may need to catch runoff water and if it's legal. Also, the quality is dictated by things like your off-grid opportunities if that's what you want to do. Is there going to be enough solar hours in the day to charge a battery bank? Or is there, there going to be enough wind to run a turbine? Or maybe you have a little stream going through there that you can do some hydro activity as well to recharge your batteries if you choose off-grid. Quality of land is also greatly dictated by its access and your ease of getting in and out of there. For example, if it's hard to get in and out of there, the quality of the land... The land itself might have great quality, but the hardship of getting in and out may reduce the, the quality of the land, if you will, and that just might not be worth the effort of the time. So I guess if you had the best piece of land on the planet and you just can't get to it, what good is having the best piece of land? But I'll discuss these a little bit more in depth. Third step in how to approach uh, buying land is its general location. Of course, usually, not always, but usually closer to town or in town is going to be more than remote property. And, of course, this goes to step one where it depends on what you want to do. The reason why it might be more beneficial is you have to ask yourself, do I need an off-homestead income to make my dream work? If you do, then you want to be fairly close to town. And by town, I'm talking about say, a town of maybe a minimum of 30,000, 25,000, perhaps. 
because this is going to be your location where there's going to be the greatest job opportunities for you, I feel. My closest town is maybe 400 people. There's not really a lot of job opportunities there if it wasn't for the fact that it has tourism coming in through there. So you have a chance of restaurants and uh, some supplies. If, if we didn't have that tourism opportunity, then the job opportunities would be a lot less. So if you're in an area that uh, offers job opportunities, then that might be an option as well. Some of these towns are so small that the, the valedictorian in the graduating class had the highest GPA and the lowest GPA. So you want to be near a town that's a little bit, uh, a little bit larger because it's going to be a little bit more industrious, if you will, in that perhaps your job opportunities be a little greater. By close, you know, it depends on what you, what, what you call close. For us folk out west, you know, driving an hour is, is nothing. We don't, we don't even think twice about that. Back east, you know, driving a half hour seems like a long haul to some people. But I guess it's just your perception. Also, the next thing about where it is, is uh, health facilities, hospitals. I know folks that had to give up their homesteading dream and very unfortunate for health reasons. And this happens more frequently than you think. I can think of uh, two folks right off the top of my head that got a little bit older, and they have to drive uh, about 150 miles to get uh, health services. And it creates quite a hardship because by the time they get there and back, that could be two days' worth of effort. To be quite frank, a lot of these towns have little or no health services. Some people, like in some of these towns, the closest health care service is a first aid kit behind the bar at the local saloon. Now, I don't know about you, but I certainly don't want some drunken barkeep stitching me up when I'm in, in need. So that's something to think about. Where's your closest hospital? For me, I've called up the local sheriff and given him my GPS and my parcel number so that in case, for example, we need to be medevaced out, there is not going to be that lag time and they can get a chopper off the ground. I know of two people that had to be choppered out because of various illnesses. One person had a heart attack, and it's not a pretty sight. Plus, it's awfully expensive. And that brings us to insurance. If you're going to be remote, you probably want to get some of this kind of medevac insurance that's out there. Because if something happens, especially our lifestyle, we're using chainsaws and you're driving some pretty bad roads, something may happen eventually and that you may need to be medevaced out. Now, this gentleman's bill was just under $50,000 to get medevaced. That's one way. A little insurance might go a long way if that's, that's something you want to do. The next step in evaluating land, I feel, is very important as well, and that's the access of the land, especially if it's pretty remote. And this also pertains to you folks who might be close to town as well. Because if you don't have legal access, then you may have to drive over someone else's property, which maybe might run into some problems with your neighbors if you're doing that. Also, if you're running over public land, you may run into government officials if you don't have legal access. For example, uh, some state land, if you go over a truck, you're subject to arrest because it's not a, a road. And they don't allow motorized vehicles on there. 
So you probably want to stick to something that has legal access, and you can find this through your county recorder's office, tax assessor's office, and you can go to plot maps and look and see if it's a legal access. The second type of access that concerns me is weather access. In our part of the country, there's a couple times of the year where it makes access to the property rather difficult. Uh, winter time, of course, uh, you can be either snowed in or snowed out, and during monsoon season. And that's usually in the summertime. And sometimes it can get so wet that you can't get in or out of the property because uh, it just turns to mud. To me, I find this a challenge, but I can see how it would be quite the hardship for a lot of people. For example... There were times last year where I couldn't get into my property, and I had to I had to turn around and uh, stay in a hotel for a night or two. Fortunately, this is very rare, but it does happen. It's something to consider. That's why if you're a little bit closer to town or, say, a closer paved road, then you might take this into consideration because it's going to be a little bit easier to get in and out of your property if you're closer to public thoroughfare. The next one is very important because it dictates the quality of your life, and that's water. I'm not just talking about wells, but I'm also talking about how you're going to get water and water rights. First, in this segment, I'm going to talk about wells and depths of wells. A lot of the part of the country, to dig a well, you have to dig very deep. In our area, it's going to be about 800 feet down. For the average person to come out on a raw pair uh, piece of land and drill down for uh, 800 feet, that might break the bank, especially at the going rate. Now, different parts of the country have different rates, but even if it's $10, uh, $10 a foot or $50 a foot to drill down, it's still going to be expensive. What I would do is, if I'm going to homestead, I'm going to look for water tables that are a little bit higher. That would be in the 200 and less foot range. And the reason why I say 200 or less is because if it's 50 feet or less, there might be a possibility that you can do what is called a sandpoint drill. And that's basically a hand-drilled well that you can do yourself. There's more information on the internet. You can Google sandpoint drills and find out how to do this. It doesn't take a lot of equipment. It can be done fairly quickly as well. I've heard stories of people going down to about 150 feet over the sandpoint drill. To me, that seems a little far. Maybe 50 feet would be a good idea. But the good news is, is that, say it's over 50 feet and 200 feet or less, you can always go on to eBay and buy a self-drilling rig for water. A lot of these rigs will go 250. I've seen them two. 250 and 200 feet, right around that area, and less. The beauty of this is you can drill your own well with this rig. It costs uh, somewhere between four or $5,000, if I remember correctly. This is the winter of 2017, so the prices may vary. You can go in, get the rig, drill your own well. Beauty is, is if you have a well and you've drilled it yourself, news travels fast. You probably won't even have to advertise. You could probably make your money back on this rig in a couple of drilling or a few drilling sessions. Water is a precious commodity, especially out west. And if you drill that rig, it's going to be the the news is going to be 
faster than a lie in church. So potential of making your money back is, is pretty quick. Next option is if you can't drill a well, say it's deep as ours is, 800 feet. You're either going to you have a few options from there. One is you're going to have to haul water or you're going to have to catch water. Those are the two things that come to mind. Now, if you're going to catch water, depending on the area of the country, the legalities will change on that. Some states, especially in the West, are fairly strict, especially some municipalities are fairly strict. One that comes to mind would be Colorado. They have some of the more stricter uh, water catchment laws than I know of. Usually, east of the Mississippi and, say, like New Mexico, they have more of the lenient water catchment laws. One good website to go to if you're thinking about water collection is uh, acerwatertanks.com. Now, Acer Water Tanks uh, has a map on there that you can hover over, and they will tell you what the laws are in a brief description for any particular state you're thinking about homesteading in. Tell you specifically whether it's very lenient or if it's a little bit more stringent. The other option is to haul water. Water hauling is pretty demanding. The reason why I say that is because it might not be too demanding if you're near a place where you can get water, but if you have to haul it at long distances, it wears a lot on your truck, on your suspension, your trailer. Not really as cost effective as being able to collect water in that you don't have to go out and get it and you don't have to pay for gas and repairs on the vehicle. I've seen numerous times, and it's happened to myself too, where we're broken down, especially suspension, ball joints, and bindles, and things of that nature break because of the weight of the water. This would be my least favorite way of obtaining water, but if you have to do it to start, it gives you a great value and understanding of water. You will look at water in a whole new way in wherever you go, say for example, a public restroom or somebody else's house or something. And how we as a society value water, people just let that run down the tap like it's, like it's water. And this is a valuable resource. Once you have to haul water for a while, you will look at it in a whole different way. It's something that, that bothers me because every drop of water, when I first started my homestead, I had to haul in. Next thing are water rights. For example, on west of the Mississippi, I found a nice little piece of property. It has a little babbling brook going through there. I'll take the water out of that. I can feed my livestock from there. You might not be able to. There's different kinds of water rights depending on where you live. East of Texas, with the exception of Mississippi that I know of, are under a thing called the Riparian Water Right Doctrine. What that means is it's, it's a fairly lenient water right in that if you own a piece of property that abuts water, then you have the right to use it. However, this is the opposite in the West where water is not as abundant as in the East. And most of those states are what they call prior appropriation water right states. And they follow the prior appropriation doctrine. That means basically is that the first one to put the water to a beneficial use is the person who owns the right to the water. And a lot of these water rights go back uh, 100, 150 years for the original homesteaders, the pioneers. 
they did was they set up a ranch and they either fed their cattle with the water or used the water for the cattle or they used uh, the water when they set up farms. And so they have the right to use all that water. And they, it's been passed down from generation to generation. So if you go onto a piece of property and try to hook up to that brook or stream or what have you, then you might get a knock on the door and somebody's going to want to know why you're using their water. This is something to look into before you buy your piece of property. Do I get water rights with my property? And if so, how much? There are also some states that have a combination of these. So it's good to look into whatever state you're thinking about homesteading in and see what the water rights are. On segment three of this three-part series, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about how to find your homestead dream property. In that segment, I'm going to be talking about off-grid options such as solar, wind, and hydro. I'll be talking about the size of the buildings and zoning and how that pertains to zoning laws. I'll also be talking about the value of your woodlot and what to look for in that as well. Mineral rights and why you should or should not try to get those when you get a piece of property. Also easements and what to look for in a potential community. Also I'll be talking about something else that a lot of people don't really think about when they're looking at property or the quality of property. And that is the amount of game that's in the area for hunting and fishing purposes that can add potential value to your life and also meat on your table. If you get a chance, go over to our website at SimronRanch.net. You can also check us out for our podcasts on iTunes. And also ease on over to uh, YouTube where we're doing some how-to videos. I just put one up on uh, making deer stand brackets for our water tower that we're putting up. The next one will also be some cage traps that I've built and showing you how to build those as well. So those are going to be more how-to and this will be more informative for the podcast. If you have any questions uh, or comments, by all means, leave them down below and I'll be more than happy to respond to you. Thanks for listening. God bless. I'm out.